Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on Monday, September 19th, 2022. Monday, because we were quite busy yesterday, going to uh, Nico's 30th birthday party and participating. It was a great party. Mm-hmm. Hasbong seemed to enjoy it, right? <laughs> he slept through most of it. Uh, Nico's uh, father, Oscar. Yeah made a fabulous, enormous paella Mm -hmm. uh, for the crowd. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a great day. Yeah. Yes, yes. But we have to go back to work. So uh, we're back at it. Right? Right. 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 In fact, we're in a little bit of a rush because I I have to go back and see Hazi again. Yes. yes. It's a big birthday week for us, actually. Yes. Next week, we got Pepper coming up. She will be two. Well, she's not coming up. We're going out there. Yeah. The, the birthday's coming up. Yeah, the birthday's coming also, up. Also, uh, Ellie, our engineer, not yeah. her birthday, her mom's birthday. Oh, really? Is the same day as Pepper's on Sunday. Oh. Kathy Easton. Happy birthday, Kathy. So, uh, it's a great time of year to have a birthday, I think. Okay. Temperature's cooling down. <laughs> not yet. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe, yeah. maybe. Yeah, 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 yeah. I yeah, think yeah. fall is coming. I think the I think fall starts. It like usually, yeah, yeah, it, it sneaks in about. This I'm time. glad to see it. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, uh, but we of course have been out and about because that's the kind of people we are. And uh, <laughs> you identified, uh, you know, you got to read the paper pretty carefully to find these kind of things. Uh, a play we might want to see uh, put on by a community theater at Langhorn Players. In state Tyler State Park, Tyler State Park being near Bucks County Community College, I suppose. And uh, we've gone to a couple things that are like community theater, or might even be called community theater. All this? No, you haven't. All right. Well, uh, yeah, I grew up going to community oh, yes. theater. Well, well, what do you the, call the what do you, Kengar Players? What do, you, what do you call the place in Lambertville? The uh, music on the mountain. I don't think that's community theater. No, why not? No, that's a small theater. Really small theater. One of the stars of the last production uh, works, uh, serves coffee at uh, you know, the local Starbucks. Do you remember that? Yeah. All <laughs> actors are working somewhere else, Daniel. <laughs> you know, newsflash. All right. All right. All right. I, 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 I don't know about that. But the point, this clearly was community theater. And, and, and in the right. sense that... It was that, a, your first experience, really. No, no, no. You know, I, you know, I lived a long uh, childhood before him. Have you ever been to like a, a local small place with folding up I saw a community theater pro- production of The Pajama Game years ago, which is still embedded in my mind. Where uh, did you see that? Uh, I don't know. I was so small, I didn't even know. They, they, they took me out. I must have been six years old. But I was very sophisticated for six. But my point is this. I, I definitely did see... A production of pajama game in a community theater. Oh, okay. Okay. But um, this was clearly community theater in the sense that uh, it was a very small theater. It was and kind about of... About 75 seats. A little rough and tumble. And yeah, it was adorable. Uh, that's my... Your phrase, adorable. Mine, rough and, and tumble. Over the, the, door, the sign over the door said, since 1947. That's the last time they and cleaned it, it I was believe. quite. Yeah, it yes. was quite cozy yeah. and charming. <laughs> it was. It was being in a... Uh, yeah, post-war and they had situation. pictures up of all their past—not all, but many past productions. Yeah, and many Shakespeare they've, productions. They've done some, you know. They didn't have the later Shakespeare productions because they go back a long way. They uh, right. The, the point is, is, it was a pretty small time, and there's nothing wrong with small time. And you're sitting a stone's throw from the actors, so uh, they had a wonderful sound system. I might add. You pretty much know what they had for dinner. I, I don't want to get. That's into how this. close you are. <laughs> 
don't even know what that means. But my point is that uh, so we went there to see a Wendy Wasserstein play. Now I should say, uh, just to introduce the subject, that we had we saw the Heidi Chronicles uh, in New York by Wendy Wasserstein, perhaps her best known play a few years ago. A revival, of yeah, course. Yeah, a world revival, of course. Yes, uh, starring uh, Elizabeth Moss. Right, and it was great. It was great. So, uh, you know, I think uh, I was certainly looking forward to this because uh, it exceeded my expectations. It was really excellent. Well, I had been charmed by Uncommon Women. Right, which is... uh, The... I guess I saw it on PBS in about 1976. Right. Uh, and uh, but that was, was fascinated that was because, good... of course, it was about women graduating from Holyoke, and I had just graduated from Princeton, and the, there were some commonalities there. And so I, you know, been... well, she she wrote it. Buddy Washington wrote it just shortly after she was out of school, I yeah. suppose. Yeah. Do you remember who was in that? Because I remember a few people. Meryl Streep, Meryl Streep, uh, Susie Kurtz. That's who I remember. Those two. Um, yeah. Was uh, Stocker Channing in that? It could have been. Joan Allen could have been in it too, but I don't. I don't um, remember. But, I don't know. Uh, but anyway, I've been. I had been liking Wendy Wasserstein for a long time, but really hadn't seen. But much. you're supposed to like her. I'm a guy, and I even liked Heidi Chronicles. Okay? <laughs> and I'm not particularly evolved. Well, that was let's a, be honest. that was a very good production. Oh, but it was anyway, fantastic. so it was, with that in mind, with that in mind, so I, I, I was more than a willing participant. We were interested to see this right. play. We didn't know anything. And it's called Third. Third being the last play Wendy Wasserstein wrote. And it's the story, it takes place in many of her plays, honestly, uh, take place in a university-type setting. Uh, and uh, the story is a uh, central character being a woman who's uh, a teacher with a feminist perspective on uh, literary matters, who's been teaching there for some time. And it's her dealings, the centerpiece are her dealings with a student who is, uh, let's say, uh, different uh, orientation in terms of uh, his analysis of the kind of literature they're looking at, and he's a wrestler. He's, an, I guess, he's supposed to be a jock. Uh, you know, looks at the world a little differently than she does. He wants to be a sports agent. Wants he's to be a sports agent. Yes, a business major. Right. Taking uh, a literary course, he needs a humanities credits. Right. Uh, hence, she looks down on him. She does. He looks out at him uh, mercilessly. Her, her meanest thing she keeps saying to him is, "Are you a Republican?" Yeah, and then uh, of course the, the well, I shouldn't say of course, but the problem arises when they put in their they submit their midterm papers. His paper is excellent, and uh, the only explanation that the teacher can come up with to explain it to herself is that he plagiarized it. And there, and then based on no one, no one evidence other than her distrust of his intellectual abilities, she brings him up in proceedings for plagiarism. That's that's the centerpiece in terms of the action, right. such as it is. Uh, so I just want to give you a sense of what the play is about. And uh, so uh, what did you think? I thought it was, I thought it was okay. Mm-hmm. What, you know, I, she, this is the last play she wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, she passed away. Yeah, so it was presented from, at Lincoln Center for the first time in 2005, and she died in January 2006. Yes. So it's pretty immediate. Um, and... Uh, it seemed, in some ways, it did seem like um, a looking back, a, you know, kind of uh, questioning herself about perhaps some of her attitudes and experiences. Okay. 
No? Yeah, I mean, and, and maybe even whether uh, whatever efforts uh, she had made in terms of certain causes or uh, issues that she had gotten uh, focused on, whether it was all worth it, whether there was any point to it. But in terms of the writing, it didn't seem quite on... It, it, I didn't think it was her best writing. I, I thought things um, went odd directions and weren't picked up. Uh, things were just not... not as sharp, as interesting. Um, some things just went over like a lead balloon. Um, so I, I thought it wasn't quite, uh, I don't know, on the nose. Yeah, well, there are two things you're, you're dealing with here. Uh, you know, on the one hand, we're looking, you know, we're talking about the writing right now, the play. And on the other hand, we're also seeing a community theater production by actors who aren't professionals. And uh, they're not going to do best by any play, because they're not professional actors. Well, you don't know that. Uh, I think but, you do. I do know but that. But anyway. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, let's not get into individual actors. I mean... Uh, no, they, they, please but, don't. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you can tell they were The point is, you, you're right. Some things could uh, come across right. with a different uh, presentation, shall yes. we say. Yeah. Okay. Um, but... Uh, even acknowledging that, some things were just heavy-handed. Some things, yeah. uh, you know, uh, she just, uh, she was she did not seem as nimble to me, right. verbally. Well, that, that's why I pointed out conceptually. that we like the Heidi Chronicle so much. Because right. it's not, you know, she's she has a, she puts in her place a certain political content. Uh, and, uh, and that doesn't trouble me. That doesn't bother me. And I said, really enjoy the Heidi Chronicles. Uh, but you're right. This play, uh, you know, without dissecting it, uh, wasn't particularly good. And I think a lot of it was the writing. But, uh, you know, you just don't know what an actor can do with a particular material. So it's hard to really pull it apart. The one thing I will say about her material, Wendy Washington, and I've read some critiques of uh, stuff of hers. She seems to be much stronger in writing monologues than dialogues. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I think the um, Heidi Chronicles, uh, the opening monologue is, is almost famous. I mean, you can get on YouTube and see, pick up the Heidi Chronicles mm-hmm. monologue. And they're interesting speeches. And the strongest thing in this play was the opening monologue, where mm-hmm. the, the, the college teacher is speaking to the audience as if they're her class. And later she had another monologue like that. And that was also probably the second strongest moment. But in terms of characters interacting, uh, in dialogue, you know, people qua people, uh, not so much. And uh, again, maybe, you know, some uh, inexperience, but whatever. It really seemed to me pretty clearly uh, lacking here. And of course, it took away from the play. So, yeah, she, she really couldn't depict a um, college wrestler at all. No, well, I will say, <laughs> that just, you know, that was, actually hurt me. And that was a parallel between her and the main character. And in terms of the character, basically, can't. Uh, really understand this this guy at all and therefore dismisses him. But the truth is, the character is a little bit of a stand-in for Rosserstein and she also had no understanding of the character that she's writing. Yeah. Right? She's writing that, she what is he? Uh, oh yeah, he's a wrestler, wrestler, football player. You know, they get, they get certain claims. No, 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 no. Wrestlers are different. <laughs> okay? The difference between a wrestler and a football player is like night and day. Yeah. Okay? There's nothing about this guy that uh, you would say, oh, he has kind of a jock mentality. If you're a wrestler, you're in a different way, you know. But she has no appreciation for that character. So, in any event, 
was never regarded as one of her great plays. As a matter of fact, when people mention her four best plays, we don't have to go into it, but uh, no one mentions third. Uh, the reviews that I've seen of it are tepid at best, and I'm sure no one wanted to be unkind at that point in her life. So, um, but, you know, all said, I, I thought it was interesting. We, we, we did have a fun night. Well, yeah, uh, I, uh, you know, it's worth going. I'd go again, but I really have my eye on what they're performing. I think you got a much better bet if it's really good material. And, uh, you know, we'll keep our eyes open. Right? That can, that can go either way. Yeah, I've seen a little more community theater oh, than you have. I forgot who I was talking to. No, but sometimes if it's a well-known yeah, You're disappointed? Uh, piece. No, it's just people come to it, uh, they're imitating... You know the movie, or the, you know, you know what I mean. It's not fresh. It's not. Okay. Uh, it's uh, and sometimes when they have to kind of interpret or develop some work that's they're not as familiar with, uh, it comes across in a more interesting way. Yeah, let's see. I'd be curious to see something like Pygmalion because I think that's a can't fail. But you know that would test the theory for me. <laughs> so, Pygmalion, okay. See if you can work that out. Okay, okay so I just want to make one th- mention before we get off uh, theater type stuff. They had an article about a guy named Morgan Wallen who I never heard of, and I'd like to think you never heard of. Country Star, he's selling a lot of records. You ever heard of Morgan Wallen? No. Okay, good. We're on the same planet then. Uh, but in any event, he beat. Uh, he's now beaten the 64 record set by the folk trio Peter, Paul, and Mary for the longest top 10 run for an album by a single artist. Now, put aside that Peter, Paul, and Mary were not a single artist. Okay. It's only the, what does that even mean? It's only the New York Times. But, yeah. <laughs> but I don't even want to dwell on that. But here, here's what distinction they're making. Okay? Mm-hmm. In the 66 years of the Billboard 200 album chart, seven other titles have had longer stretches in the top 10. But those are all movie soundtracks or Broadway cast albums. Mm-hmm. Apparently, the, the albums that have stayed the longest in the top 10 have been... Soundtracks, and these uh, are also under single artists. No, this, this, this is the other <laughs> side of single artists. Oh, okay, okay. But in any event, so they wanted to put those aside because it's not fair competing yeah, with those right. kind of things. Yeah, and of course that's a little bit historical. But guess what? Which album has the longest run of all albums on the top uh, one hundred? It's a play. It's a it's musical a, play. It's a musical play. I don't yeah. know. Come on, take a yeah, guess. Yeah, take a guess. What's your favorite Broadway cast album? What's my favorite? Well, it's Dreamgirls. No, it's actually. not. No, it's not. From when you were a kid. Come From on. When come I was on. a kid, My Fair Lady. My Fair Lady is the winner. Congratulations. <laughs> my Fair Lady, which came out in 1956, so you didn't get it right away, right? <laughs> is the longest run of all albums. It was on the, in the top 10 for 100. That's interesting. Listen, listen. For 173 weeks in a row. Wow, so that that's that's more than three years. Let's do a little. There you go. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Talking about the world changing. I know Hamilton was hot for a couple of months. One hundred seventy-three weeks in a row in the top ten. Hmm. Hmm. All right. Just wanted to bring that to your attention. Um. Yeah. Okay. Uh. There were. Uh, Roger Federer retired. Okay. And uh, this is interesting to me for a couple of reasons. Uh, you know, we all know, a lot of us know, Federer, everybody loves Federer, great uh, men's tennis champion. But um, 
there were just some interesting articles about him. Um, and there were things about him that I didn't quite get. And one in the, in the Times just uh, begins this way. It says, Roger Federer is the most famous living citizen of Switzerland. It's, quote, it's not even close, said Nicholas Badeau, a Swiss official in charge of promoting the country's image abroad. I believe that. But how remarkable is that? He's a tennis player. I know, but can you think of anybody well, he, from Switzerland? A, yeah, but but you people in Switzerland might know other people in Switzerland. And he's the most famous. Worldwide. Uh, yeah, okay, I guess that's true. But even so, that's kind of remarkable. It's kind of remarkable. Okay, and, what else you got? Okay. <laughs> well, there was some very interesting stuff. Why is it? There was, you know, a whole analysis. Why is it? Why is it? He does this well. He does that well. He's no, a, you can t- you can point that out if it's very interesting stuff. No, no, Go that's ahead. not that's not interesting stuff. Let me get to the interesting stuff. Okay, you know, he's ballet like. He's got a wonderful disposition. He loves people. He's always been excellent. You know, uh, as a, as no a wonder celebrity. he's famous. No wonder he's famous. Um, but he, here's here's what uh, I thought was most interesting. They had two different analyses. Uh, one is. They showed that uh, the trajectory of his career, right? And when he started out, believe it or not, did you know that Federer was, uh, had a hot temper? He was like McEnroe at the beginning? No, I had no idea. Yeah, he was like McEnroe. And he's Swiss? That just doesn't seem possible. And his, here, if you can believe this, his parents took him aside and said, you can't do this. This is not when he was eight years old. He was already on the circuit as a junior, maybe. They said, you can't do this. And he finally figured out, this is before he won a major, but close to it. He figured out he played better tennis when he was in control of himself, uh-huh. and he got in control of himself. Okay. So it can be done, John McEnroe. It can be done. So I've got to have the right parents. But uh, yes, the parents have something to do with it. Then um, a couple of things, random things that I didn't realize. So you know that he broke the uh, record for um, most majors won by a male tennis player by a man. Okay, uh, you might not even know he broke the record, but uh, I'll tell you. Do you know what the record was? Uh, you don't know whose record it was. Well, that either you know, I didn't know this. Why should you know this? It was Pete Sampras had the record. It mm-hmm. was fourteen. Okay, fourteen majors. All right, he broke that record, and you know he ended up with um, twenty major championships. The record okay. was fourteen is twenty. Now, of course, you're saying to me, yes, Dan, but. Nadal and Djokovic also have 20, if not more. And that's absolutely true. Djokovic is 21 and Nadal is 22. Mm-hmm. So that's why that in some ways diminishes the accomplishment, to be sure, although Federer was in the vanguard of that. But many would tell you they still think that Federer's greatest player. The interesting thing is the Times does an analysis, which man has been the best player between Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer. And they try it eight ways to Sunday. And the conclusion is... You can't tell. So that was kind of predictable. But here's something that's also interesting. The final point I'm making is we're getting a lot of skepticism from you. Okay. Uh, they list the, all of his finals and who he beat um, in his finals, in, in the final in the majors. I mean, he won 20 majors, right? And, you know, who he beat most often. And you might not be surprised to know that the people he beat most often was who people he lost to sometimes. He beat Nadal three times. Mm-hmm. In a major final, he beat uh, Andy Murray, you know, uh, three times mm-hmm. in a major final. 
But the thing that stunned me is that the person who he beat most in major finals was Andy Roddick. He beat Andy Roddick four times mm-hmm. in a major final. And what that really says to me, I'm saying, you know, Andy Roddick is never mentioned as one of the tennis greats. He's not mentioned with McEnroe and Sam Price and Jimmy But maybe so bad. Maybe it wasn't so bad. Maybe if Federer wasn't Federer, he'd have four major titles. I mean, can you imagine that? Four major titles he lost to Federer? Mm. Anyway, Federer was great. Everybody loves Federer. Uh, He's considered the most gracious person, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Great ambassador for tennis. Came along at the right time. So uh, he'll be missed. What can I say? He'll be missed. That's so funny. McEnroe, out of control. No one stops him. Yeah. And this guy stops, becomes, you know, he won many a great more, player. Yeah, many won many more majors than McEnroe. And becomes a great person. Yeah. Well, you know, there is a All quote. because his parents took him aside. I don't know, but there was a quote from somebody, Donald Dell. Do you remember Donald Dell? He used no. to be a figure in the broadcast. Anyway, uh, if you saw him, you might remember him. He's, Except he, I never watched any psh, tennis. My don't don't, don't, don't ruin it for me. He had an interesting quote. He said, you know, I always used to tell player people that Arthur Ashe and Stan Smith were good players uh, and even better people. Mm-hmm. And he says, and Federer was a great player and a great person. Um, so, you know, he's in that class. Yeah. Okay. It's all yours. Speaking of birthdays, yes. happy birthday, Bloomingdale's. Bloomingdale's. Bloomingdale's the, big, the, big the department B. store. Yes. The Big B, and I don't mean Belmont. <laughs> That's a famous cartoon. I'm surprised you still remember it. But yeah. um, and it's a husband talking to his wife. Right. Talk, or, I, I can't remember the whole Ask context. Me, has it to do where, where she wanted to be buried. Yeah. And um, anyway, uh, turned 150. That's crazy. That's crazy. It's 150 years old? Yeah. It was started by Lyman and Joseph Bloomingdale in 1872. And get this, yeah. this is unusual, only about three blocks south of where Bloomies is, is now in New York. So it was in the 40s? Um, or it was in the 50s? South. Yeah, south. So it was, it's, I, it's on 59th I, Street now. I don't know exactly. Where was three blocks south? This was the article says. Avenue. I'm trying okay. to think where was it. Okay. The point is that all these stores, like, you know, when you read about the history of, you know, Tiffany's yeah. or... Um, Lord and Taylor's the one the places that go way back they started out way downtown because right. way downtown where it was. was you know where the action was where the action was and th- this was out in the boondocks um, so but anyway so the Times had a big uh, photo spread yeah. and a big article and the article chose to center on um, the years uh, like from the swinging 60s up until just about internet time uh, that uh, Bloomingdale's really came into its own. Okay. And um, it was headed by Marvin Traub. Right. And uh, the, some of the key people that made it what it became. You know, it was just, it, it was, you know, I had heard that it was just kind of a discount, uh, you know, fairly random place mm-hmm. before I got there. I actually worked there during this swinging period. Well, naturally. You know, it was... Uh, um, Sure, my first interim, tell tales. my first little yeah. job, you yeah. know, after graduating college. Yeah. And uh, I, you know, desperate for work, 
took a job in the trimetry department at Bloomingdale's As one in does, New York yes. City. Right. And, uh, you know, it, boy, it's, it's hot in the trimetry department. Let me just tell you that. You have all these trees yeah. completely decked out with zillions of lights. And uh, for like uh, three months, I worked very intensely. Yeah. And uh, it was a riot. And they mentioned in this article everything that was Bloomingdale's during that period. Okay. Uh, number one. 40 Carats. That was the name of the uh, luncheon bar oh, really? uh, upstairs. Uh-huh. And it was one of the first places to really popularize uh, frozen yogurt. People, A couple people in this article mentioned that's where they had their first frozen yogurt. Huh. Uh, so you'd go up there and uh, sit at the uh, uh, counter, mm-hmm. um, as one does in a department store right. in the uh, 20th century, and uh, order... The highly nutritious lunch of, you know, fruit and uh, frozen yogurt, whatever it was. Uh, So there was that. Um, They mentioned also, uh, I was talking to you about this earlier, how you could get, you can get out of the subway and right into Bloomingdale's. And in that basement level, they had this extremely hip young people section called Saturday's Generation. Oh, and a, it you was know, closed, wasn't it? it was closed, yeah. but it was a hangout. It was yeah. a place to be. Yeah. It, it was. Yeah, I, it was cool. That. It was kind yeah. of dark. And right. well, it was a basement. Uh, right. You know. Um, by so it really, yeah. you know, and the, of course, the main floors were um, just uh, you know the main floor with its black and white tiles and all these um, you know clusters of different uh, cosmetic stands and stuff. They even had a uh, on the side. They had. Um, you know, like a little uh, bake shop where you could buy things. I don't know if you remember that. No, no, no. Um, anyways, it was uh, it became a really cool place. In thanks, in no little part, to Candy Pratt's price, the uh, window designer. They had wild windows mm-hmm. um, and uh, did crazy, crazy stuff. Uh, but, you know, the 50s, 60s uh, were a big window time over at Tiffany. Jasper Johns and Robin Rauschenberg were doing uh, windows, etc. So there was a lot of artistic yeah, fervor. You, you weren't seeing the windows in the 60s, though, just, just to be honest. You know. I'm just saying, yes, that's, I'm just talking about... I see. Bloomingdale's. Okay, I'm not saying that I was there or aware of any of I don't want people this. to think that you're an old Well, person. am I allowed to say this? Do you remember the little brown bag? No. Yeah, their shopping bag was a brown bag. It was yeah. uh, designed by Massimo Vignelli, and it, it said on it... The little brown bag. Little brown bag, right. and it was the cool bag. It was the cool shopping bag to be walking around with. Well, okay. Uh, everybody had one. Um, so it was just, it brought back a lot of memories to me, and just... Uh, you know, we had um, a pretty random group of people there. We had some celebrities. I think Richard Vaughn came in oh, right. and bought a bunch of stuff. Robert for, Vaughn. Robert Vaughn, right. yeah. Um, for his, uh, for some island house and had really? like two Christmas trees shipped off and, and so on. So there was excitement like that where we'd all go to Jelly. And uh, and just a just very... Just so we're clear, Robert Vaughn was the man from Uncle. Right, yeah, okay. right. Yes. Um, and... Uh, you know, it was just a funny group of people. And that's why one of the guys was a guitar player in a band that, you know, eventually was playing at CBGB. So that's why I went to CBGB's that time, because um, my uh, co-worker oh, okay. from Bloomies was uh, playing there. Uh, so it was a Motley crew, and, and it was pretty fun. 
those were the days, 1970s. But I did not make a career out of it. Although several people in your family were, did work at Bloomingdale's for a while. Did my mother work at Bloomingdale's? George. Oh, George. George just met his wife there. Yeah. Did he meet his wife there? Yeah, I I think so. No, no, I think you're probably right. Now you're saying you're probably right. Yeah, Cousin George. I'm just trying to remember if... I don't think I went to CBGB's with you, did I? But... No, no, no. I went with another uh, co-worker. A woman. I I can't remember her name. But... Okay. Yeah, it was... It was, you know, an exciting place to be. What was CBGB's like? It was dark and noisy. Okay. It was very exciting. Stick with to that be, story. To be with yeah. somebody who was playing there. <laughs> okay. uh, all right. Well, there you go. I mean, listen, I, I could go into stories about getting lost in Bloomingdale's, but, it, but that's totally not interesting. You get lost in every store. That's for sure. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. So there was a... Here's an article. After the world champion, champion is upset, whispers of cheating royal the sport. What sport is that? Chess. Chess. Magnus Carlsen is the world champion. There was a um, tournament... Well, the Sinkfield Cup in St. Louis, he was upset by Hans Niemann. Hans Niemann being the lowest-seeded chess player in the group. It was a stunning uh, result. And there are rumors now that there was cheating. But there's nothing more than rumors. I mean, a lot of people seem to be grousing about it in the chess world. And I'm reading the Times article, like, I can't even tell what cheating is. How do you cheat at chess? I mean, it's not like, you know, the, the other guy, you know, Carlson sneezed and Neiman moved a few pieces. It's not, it's not that kind of thing. Um, and Were they shaving points? <laughs> what were they doing? I don't know. I, I think, I think that there's so little evidence of cheating here. It's so wildly speculative that uh, the idea is computer assistance. That's the way people cheat at chess now. They um, cheat to the extent there's any cheating. Uh, they use computer... Uh, so not unlike some sources. of my students, he had his phone like yeah, yeah. under the table and he was glancing at it? Yeah, it would be a little trickier because, you know, chess moves uh, put you in different positions pretty quickly. I don't know how you do it. And of course, there's no phone under the table here. I don't know how... So there's no evidence at all. There's nothing to go right. on. So except, you're bringing up an article with no evidence. Except that people take it seriously and they say... and and. You know what it is? This fellow hasn't been a Neiman hasn't been accused of cheating, except you know somebody tweets tweet something which says notice that he hasn't been on Chess.com for six months. The implication was the folks who run Chess.com uh, disqualified him from participating because he's is a bad actor. Now, when you're competing in tournaments on Chess.com, it's like on your honor you're not going to uh, computer sources to make your moves. And, uh, you know, so there I can understand how people can cheat. In any event, it's all innuendo. It's like the definition of innuendo. It's rumored innuendo. And yet people are roiled up about it because Magnus Carlsen is such that he doesn't lose. And he doesn't lose to a guy like Neiman, especially, they said, because Neiman was playing the black. All right. Well, I think we can sum this up. A lot of rumors flying about about Magnus. What's his name? Magnus Carlsen. Magnus Carlsen Carlsen hasn't lost... Big the white Carl. pieces, big Carl, as we call him. All right. Can we move on, please? With white pieces in two years, they say he's he's very flexible in his openings with the white pieces. He can't be beat, except by Hans and Neiman. So anyway, I just I'm setting you up. I'm letting you know there's going to be follow up articles about this. Go ahead. All right. 
This is your article. I don't know why I'm talking about it. Because it's up your alley. It's artistic. Why? It's not artistic. It's It's a coin. A coin was seized from an auction. Look at the picture of that coin. It just, it it looks in fantastic shape and it goes back how many years, Tamsin? 69 AD. That would be about 2,000 years. Anyway, so it was seized seized from an auction because it was, I don't know. Stolen. Stolen. He, 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 well, let me let me explain. Stolen. Why. It was. Uh, it was excavated within excavated the last few years, notwithstanding there's a law in Israel. Illegally excavated. Okay. okay. But I think what you're finding interesting is the story behind it. No, it's the coin itself. It's, it's a, a quarter shekel piece. A quarter shekel piece. I didn't even know a shekel was a real thing. I thought it was just an expression. Oh, are you kidding me? Yeah. It's like Israeli pennies, coins. shekels. It's a shekel, a few shekels. You never a hear the expression? Shekels. Throw this the guy a, a, a few shekels. This is a quarter shekel. It's a quarter shekel. But it's worth. Five hundred to a million well, here, dollars. Here's the interesting thing. Now that's a shekel. Well, the point is, politically, it was a defiant move, right? Right. The Romans because the Romans had controlled the temple and the surrounding area, and the Israelites or the Jews that lived there, uh, in defiance, took Roman coins and shaved them down or did something and refashioned them into their own coins. It was a major statement of their independence. Uh, yeah. Okay, right. and uh, they actually the Jews could um, make brass coins, right? But silver was controlled. Yes, so, uh, yeah, the government, the Romans didn't care about the because it's still you know different coins were used for different purposes. Right. I guess silver coins were used for important things like paying your temple dues. Right, they had temple dues even in fifty nine eighty. That boggles my mind. My, yeah, anyway. my family probably owes owes temple dues from the, from that long ago. And it's, also, there weren't many of these uh, made. They were only made for like during this five year period when these coins were being made. Only. Two years, the quarter shekel. I think it's made. amazing to look at a coin that looks as good as that coin looks, and they say it's two thousand years old. I mean, the idea. You is, know, I could take you to a museum. We can look at a lot of coins. Two thousand years okay. is a long time. I mean, you get that on Antiques Roadshow. You're going to get more than eight hundred dollars for that. I mean, that's big time. But the law. I mean, it, they act like you know it's a law against nature that they have this coin for sale. The truth is, what the Israeli government did was they passed a law. It might have been the seventies. That said, anything that's excavated of any value from now on belongs to us, the state. Right. And everybody says, oh, that's cool. That's the way it should be. But what if you bought it in 19... 19- well, no, they excavated it a few years ago. So that's how they broke the law. They excavated it after the law was uh, passed. Oh, okay. But the idea that the government's allowed to pass laws that says anybody finds anything under the ground is ours, everyone thinks that's cool. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, I don't, so I don't care about that aspect of it. I'm just more amazed by the coin and the story, as you say. Okay. Uh, interesting All right. story. All right. We'll talk about uh, the government expropriating things or making things difficult. Well, when we were at Mohonk yeah. last week, we were, we were just getting ready to leave, and an interesting truck, pickup oh, right. truck, yes, that's right. drove by, and it said Rivian. And I said it. to you, look at that. And of course, you said, I didn't see it. But no, I, I'm the one who pointed it out. You did me. not point it out yes. to me. You I said it? Rivian. You did? Yes. That was you? Yeah. I don't remember that. I said, what does Rivian mean? Does that mean it's amphibian? Like oh you can go God. in the water? I don't remember this. And discussion. then you gave me a big speech. We okay. had talked about Rivian. Rivian is this, this new uh, electric vehicle truck startup uh, that's one of these disruptors. It's not, you know, GM. It's not uh, Ford. Guy starts a new car company. He's going to build a better uh, truck. It's going to be electric, and it's going to look a little different, and uh, it's going to cost eighty, hundred thousand dollars. And here you go. And finally, he's getting on the market with it. And there've been some terrible ups and downs with this. 
Uh, I think they're going to lose billions of dollars before they start making money. But in any event, uh, they finally have it going now. Uh, and it was amazing to see one of these trucks because of all the challenges they've had. And here's a new challenge. Uh, it turns out it's hard to sell these because of state franchise laws. There are state franchise laws or franchise laws in most every state in the country, which says that car makers can only sell their cars through independent franchisees. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that means that, you know, obviously, uh, you know, Mazda selling through their Mazda dealerships, uh, GM, whatever. Um, the guys make Rivian, they made the cars, they don't have dealerships. All right. Mm -hmm. So how are they going to sell their cars? The answer is they're not. <laughs> they can't. So they hire a guy uh, named uh, Jim Chen, whose job is to lobby and try to come up with ways to get exceptions, to get laws changed. Turns out he previously worked for Tesla. And he did work from Tesla, and Tesla managed to get certain numerous, some level of exception. But you mm -hmm. can't walk in. It's not as easy to buy a Tesla, apparently, as you would think. It's not as easy as to buy a Tesla as a Mazda. It's a state-by-state -state thing. You can buy a car online. Mm -hmm. You always can buy it online mm -hmm. but would you, because that's in the ether. But you can't, if you have one of these franchise laws in, let's say, Ohio, and you don't have a an independent uh, Tesla dealership, let's say, in Ohio, you can't waltz into any dealership and buy a car. There's no such thing. You can only buy it online. So that obviously is a very limiting factor in trying right. to sell cars. And Rivian, uh, again, hired this guy. He's not making much progress. He's trying to do the best he can. Uh, but the idea that there's a law like this that's really making Seems it difficult. Seems weird, doesn't it? It's worse than weird. It's bizarre. Yeah. And, of course, <laughs> you can't. But he's, you know, this guy is depicted as a very smart guy, and he's patient. Doesn't and that seem a real anti-competitive? It's totally anti-competitive. I, I can give you a long antitrust explanation as to why I think people passed this law at the beginning. But you might want to save that for your class. Yes, you don't want to hear that. But here's here's the argument from the dealers. Because the, dealer, the, the real story is, as you're suggesting, is that the dealers have a lot of power in their individual states. They're established by now. They're successful businesses. They write checks and all that kind of stuff. All right? And they, according to the dealerships, they play a critical role in the car buying process, helping to create competition that helps keep prices affordable for, for consumers. I don't know how, really. They argue, these are the dealers, that dealers also provide important services, such as repair and warranty work and arrange financing for buyers at competitive rates. Here's a quote from one of them. They say, there are rules in place for a reason. Now, whenever you're arguing with somebody who says there are rules in place for a reason, you know that they have no argument. That's by <laughs> definition. And uh, they have no argument here. So uh, that's what you've got. These are fighting rules that are in place for a reason. What the reason is, uh, is, is another story and probably a story that doesn't really hold up. But uh, can, can you imagine that? I mean... Uh, the exceptions, I can tell you that the Tesla exceptions have come about because they never, this is just a quirk in the law, because they never had a dealership there. They can sell the cars directly. It doesn't make any sense at all. So um, we'll see. Well, I'm sure Rivian will find a way to get on the market. You know one way to do it? It's a little bit like the uh, bricks and mortar, half, half bricks and mortar investment that some clothing manufacturers make. No, no, you can open up a showroom, even if it's not a dealership in some place in, let's say, in Ohio. And show your cars. And then when someone says, I like that car, then, then the, the person there hands you a computer and said, go buy it online. Okay. So they can do that. All right. All right. So you're outraged, right? Outraged. Okay. Go ahead.
Try to contain yourself. You know what they're doing in Japan? No. What are they doing? They're still sending telegrams. That, yeah. This surprises was, me. Was this, like, this was on the front page or something. Yeah, it was the front, front page. page of the business section, I yeah. guess, of the well, New York Times. Well, that doesn't count. Um, so it turns out that people in Japan still like still consider uh, Telegram as more meaningful yes. than other ways of communication. Right. Okay. Um, so they're used in congratulations you know, when you get married or condolences you know, or some kind of professional... Right, it's, um, it's a point of emphasis. It yeah. means that much more because you're handed something in writing. Right. But it, it it's still in kind of uh, broken English or something, or broken Japanese in the way telegrams are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, I mean, it's not like they're... It's not like it's a huge thing. It's a semi-huge thing. Although, right. you go back to, uh, like, uh, 1963. Yeah. Um, Japanese people were sending 95 million telegrams. Okay, that dropped to about 40 million by the 90s, yeah. and now it's down to three or four million. But it's still a lot more than the U.S. I mean. And the U.S. is less than a million. Well, okay, so there you go. And million. there are many more. Many and more uh, they're not. It's not like they're you know ticket ticket type 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 type. You right. know, um, it's uh, transmitted digitally somewhere. And then printed out and delivered and delivered. Yeah, okay. it's inefficient. And but uh, the it, way it, the way companies it, it, originally it was like state run or whatever in Japan, right? And then it uh, opened up a little bit, and that has provided for some new companies to start up who've made innovations like adding on flowers or mm. candy or a Hello Kitty doll. Mm. Um, and uh, this has uh, caused some revival. It's but it's still a pretty big market. 45 billion yen, 325 million buckos. Now how many is that? So that, what is that if... What is that in shekels, you think? So um, if you... They have a picture of someone, uh, Mr. Yamamoto, who has started his own telegram business about 15 years ago. He yeah. said if he could only get 1% of that, he'd have a pretty good business. So $3 million so, business. But anyway, yeah. it's still popular. People still cherish... Getting a telegram. Uh, yeah, and people do send... Telegrams. They, they they mentioned that, for instance, uh, heads of state sent telegrams right. to uh, England the, for the Queen the, passed. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so they're still around. You would think that they wouldn't be, but yeah. They are. This is also the day of uh, Queen Elizabeth's uh, burial. Yeah, and I did watch. I know you didn't watch any of it. That's correct. And I didn't see the funeral itself. That was like, you know, I'm sure you have the five o'clock in the morning. I'm sure, you can catch But up the procession, the procession is quite magnificent. It went all through Hyde Park, etc. Um, quite quite a lot of pomp and ceremony. You would think. Yeah. Well, that's their job. That's yeah. what they do. All right. So you had you you and I both. Well, we just noticed this is just a little um, interesting thing in the uh, obituaries. Brian Carey, uh, architectural and landscape designer, mm-hmm. and you know loved rock climbing, uh, great storyteller, etc. And uh, he happened to one of his big commissions was the design of Grounds for Sculpture in Hamilton, New Jersey. And we love Grounds for Sculpture. And we love Grounds for Sculpture. Grounds for sculpture. And uh, it was originally um, Seward Johnson's project. It's the old uh, state fairgrounds. 
and uh, that were converted into an outdoor sculpture mm-hmm. um, museum. Right. And uh, it's filled with Johnson's works. It used, he used to have an atelier attached to it, a forge, mm-hmm. um, you know, producing other people's uh, works, etc. Mm-hmm. And it, it has, uh, you know, all kinds of, you know, pretty reasonably contemporary stuff, but uh, not inaccessible Uh and it's just a fun, fun place to be and uh, has a restaurant, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, so Hamilton's for sculpture, Brian Carey. And uh, Brian Carey also had uh, projects and uh, he had uh, designed uh, the Spring Street Bar uh, when uh, Soho mm-hmm. was just uh, kind of... Um, Converting into the new hip art area mm-hmm. uh, from a derelict kind of um, uh, manufacturing mm-hmm. uh, sites, etc. Uh, so a, quite a career, and you just kind of um, go all the way down to the end and notice that uh, if uh, if you want to uh, sort of uh, donate in his memory. Do so to Mohonk uh, Mountain Preserve. Well, that's what we both noticed because we were yeah. interested in, in the. So that was funny because we just been to Mohonk. Ran sculpture and, and Mohonk. So yeah. there you go. Yeah. Another connection. So uh, if if he understood Mohonk, if he got Mohonk, yeah. Uh, no wonder his landscape design is spot on. Yeah. Um, and then finally, this is not even this is not even from. The New York Times. It's not from a newspaper. I noticed on the television news yes. uh, a um, story about samurai swimming. Yeah. And the only reason I listened to it is because I happened to look up and uh, saw somebody treading water in a samurai costume and said, what the heck of that? Is it, uh, you know, Halloween night mm-hmm. at, uh, you know... The Brooklyn Wets practice, <laughs> yeah. you know, in Brooklyn. It looks like water polo, but he's wearing, uh, you know, a samurai attire. And it turns out that there's a tradition of classical Japanese swimming um, that involves being able to do things like tread water so you can hold up your weapon, so that you can fire your weapon, so that you can carry your belongings across the river if you need armor? to yeah well mm. you're, you're in your armor you're you're on the the run or it's whatever impossible. you're on yeah. the march you've you're got to cross this water yeah. and uh, even eating even knowing how, being able to eat while uh, in the water uh, there's this whole tradition there's a whole genre of swimming Nihon Aiho um, that is that was originally focused on martial use, yeah. but also you know open water, mm-hmm. and they say that this it involves different techniques and treading is one of them, but th- they say that the people who can do this are great great swimmers and swim. It's a much better they have much better techniques for swimming in open water, you know, in terms of uh, current etc. Mm-hmm. Than sort of regular competitive swimmers. Mm-hmm. Now, this is, you know, somebody along the way. This goes back to the late 15th, early 16th century. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you know the whole, eventually the samurai um, system or whatever collapses. Right. Uh, so the kind of, you know, uh, samurai swimming maybe 
might have run its course, but it, it's still, there were still like, you know, dating back, there were training spots mm-hmm. for this kind of swimming. And it, you know, continued along. So there are still, um, there are um, classical swimming uh, championships that are still held. The, the, there was one recently. Mm-hmm. And they don't use, they don't hold weapons anymore. They hold like uh, umbrellas or something. Mm-hmm. But it was a nice segue. Along the way, somebody's realizing, wow, the skills that are taught here are actually quite useful in synchronized swimming. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the reasons synchronized swimming has gotten big in uh, Japan. Um, So anyway, martial swimming seems weird, but I guess if you're an island, you know, if you're surrounded by water, if water is a big part of your um, culture, you want to be prepared. And they say that this emphasis on um, being able to swim uh, really uh, contributed to a lot of good safety practice. as we moved into modern times. All right. Well, that's uh, impressive. I'll keep my eye out. Samurai, Samurai Swimmers. Nihon Ayo. And, oh, and it's called Suijutsu is the word for well, classical swimming, I think. All right. Well, that's all we have. Uh, that's you know, more than enough. More than enough. It's so, more uh, enough to swim. I'm going to go do some babysitting. Yeah. You go do what you do. I'll do some real work. For your antitrust uh, yes, students. And, until uh, next week, and this we'll is back. Dan Abuhoff. And Tamsin Granger with Tamsin and Dan Read the Paper. <laughs>